You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. Have any of you ever taken uh, Gallup's, uh, I think it's called Strength Quest or Strength Finders? Any of you done that? So of the top five strengths I have, two are futurist, so I look towards the future, and the other is strategic. So if you want a strategic plan, if you want something I can lay out and kind of, I can work it, right, Helen? I can work it. Yeah, we're working it for Mission Haiti right now. But part of me has given up on some of that. And the reason is for a church or for any organization is two realities. One is the reality of our human nature, you know, because a lot of these plans are filled with a lot of hubris and egotism. I don't know if you've seen that in business. And the other is the reality of God and how God works in this world. And you look through the scriptures and you find someone who's this great strategic planner that get all these plans together. You find a book of the Bible that's filled with all of that stuff where this person has put these things together and executed and look at how great it turned out. Now, Strategic planning, I think Paul had some of that in some of his letters in the book of Acts and how he lays it out. But the real strategic planning in the scriptures is always done by the Holy Spirit through God's word and through his son, Jesus Christ, in one form or another. And we follow along with that. And today we're going to do that in this one shot deal. um, We're going to do that. Next week, we start a new series called Stupid. S-T-O-O-P-I-D, and it's actually on the book of Proverbs. We're going to look at three weeks on um, how stupid we can be, or the fool in the book of Proverbs, maybe, um, and God's wise ways with us. So we're going to be doing that next week. Um, But today, we're going to be looking at what I believe is God's great goal and vision for Thrive and for his Christian church anywhere. And for you individually, and for me as well, and for us collectively. And that has much more to do with what I think Jesus had said in some of his last intimate moments he had to discuss and share things with his disciples than anything else. So we're going to do that as we turn to John chapter 13. And uh, let's read that right now. And when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Let's pray. Lord God, um, at the beginning of a new year and a new decade, um, we pray that you would have your way with us, your way with us here at Thrive, your way with us individually, and that we would be those who glorify you by the way you want to be glorified in this world, the way that... uh, how your life uh, and what it all meant, Lord Jesus, what it accomplished there. We pray not just for Thrive, but for all the gospel churches throughout Southwest Florida, that together, Lord, we show who you are. We show who you are in words and actions, in attitudes, in demeanor uh, to our neighbors and our friends, so that uh, a true movement of your spirit 
comes across this whole area and lives are transformed by your love and mercy and grace and truth. Bless this time as we look at your word today and as we look forward uh, to the year that you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, don't get me wrong, I am into strategic planning and uh, we probably need to do a little more of that here in some ways. But strategic plans without actually dealing with what I think Jesus is dealing with today, big deal, who cares? That's uh, what it comes down to, okay? And I hope this year is the year that we see that God has moved us to the point where we can start planning for, yes, a facility on the land that uh, we own right on Ben Hill Griffin across from FGCU. I think God is going to be doing some great things for the sake of his kingdom, not for our sake, not for my ego. Um, but I think it's taken us this long in one sense because God has been doing a deeper work in us to prepare us for that future. That if it was quick and easy and we had a facility, we had you know, all these things, if my quote strategic planning, which I did six years ago here and five, you know, all of that stuff just worked out, boy, you, I would be unbearable. <laughs> And we would probably be very shallow, okay? We might be a mile wide, but about an inch deep as a Christian community. And I see too many of those already, okay? Too many of that, the quick and easy, the flashy and the nice. So we're gonna look at today what Jesus really had in mind. Now, to set this up, um, you, John 13, Jesus has just, washed his disciples' feet. He has just celebrated the Lord's Supper with them, the Passover with them. And now he says is the moment he is going to be glorified. Now what just happened? Judas just walked out of the room. Now Jesus had reached out to him. He had challenged him. He knew what was in Judas' heart and he still reached out to him and tried to melt his heart one last time before Judas walks out of the room to betray him. And then Jesus says, now, now is the time that I will be glorified. You know what's fascinating about that word? Um, we're going to learn two things in this passage. We're going to learn, first of all, what makes true glory, or marks it, and then what makes marks true disciples. And I think he's dealing with those interchangeably throughout this short little passage in John 13. So what marks true glory? First, so Jesus uses that word glory five times in just this short little verse. Did you see that? Five times he says glory. Now is the time I will be glorified, glorified through, blah, 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 glory, glory. 61 times the word glory is used in the New Testament. 15 times in the Gospel of John itself. Five times in just this little, I mean, this is an important concept going on, Right? And so the question is kind of, what is glory? <laughs> so I was talking to a couple of, uh, I've got a couple of students in here who are going to be in my class starting tomorrow, the New Testament. This is one of the things that we will do in this class. They will be doing an exegetical paper. I know, kind of wild. So I, does that sound like fun? <laughs> Ten, 15 pages. I'll help you. You can't use this passage, okay? <laughs> well, maybe you could. 
double dip. So the word, so what you do is you look at a passage in the scripture, you realize it's inspired by God, that there is some great stuff in it, and the Greek language is very particular. And there are, it's like, so you have to ask the question, what is glory? What does that even mean, right? And so the word is adoxa, okay? Adoxes they to glorify, and it really means kind of something of value, something that is worth it, that is like, a, like, wow, that has some weight or substance to it, okay? It's related to the Hebrew word kavod, which is the glory of God in the Old Testament, the Shekinah glory of God. When God shows up, man, it's like, whoa. So what does glorious, most people would think, so what was glorious is like, if you go to the beach tonight and watch the sunset, that's glorious. Or you might go over to somebody's house and have this wonderful, elaborate meal, and it's just like, wow, your taste buds are, woo, and you go like, that was a glorious meal. Or you go to see a movie like Star Wars, and you saw it now, right? You saw it. Uh, and it's glorious because of how it works out or it tugs at your heart or whatever it is. We think of glory in those types of terms, and maybe that's the case. Now, Jesus kind of shares how it works, how something glorious basically takes your breath away and you go like, wow. And all of a sudden, you are transformed a bit by it. He shares a parable a story that kind of, he says, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. It's like a treasure that is hidden in a field, which a man, when he found, he covers it up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has to buy the field. Now, the word glory doesn't show up here, but it's kind of the result of him finding this treasure. It's something that he finds it of such worth and such value. Beforehand, it was just a field, it was, and... He probably valued all these other things in his life. But afterwards, once he saw the treasure, it, was, it devalued everything else. And all of a sudden, this was it. Okay? Now, Jesus does something shocking when he speaks about his glorification in this text. Where does he say his glory is going to be seen? Because he says, now is the Son of Man glorified. Not in the future the Son of Man is going to be glorified one day. But now, in John 13, 31, he says, now the Son of Man is to be glorified. Okay? And God is glorified in him. And what he's talking about is his crucifixion. When he is hanging in shame upon the cross. And if you struggle right now with that idea of being glorious, you're not the only one. The church has always struggled, and Christians have always struggled with seeing the cross as a glorious thing. Because the first disciples, if they, they were, the cross was a shameful thing. It wasn't glorious. It was a disgusting, most revolting way for anyone to die. You were stripped naked and exposed and taunted and jeered and nailed and left to suffer in agony for hours, cruel and unusual punishment. That's what it was. And for Jesus, even prior to the cross, he had been beaten to a disfigured position 
where, he, according to Isaiah's prophecy, that we didn't even recognize who he was anymore because he was so beaten and disfigured. And here, Jesus, in his weakness, in his humiliation, and in his grotesqueness, says, this is my glory. And he's not doing a euphemism here, saying something nice to cover up something ugly. He is saying the truth. This is my glory. This is why I came. In John chapter 12, when the Greeks came to say, hey, we want to see who Jesus is, he says, now the Son of Man is going to be glorified again in John chapter 12, just before this, because he knows all nations, when I am lifted up from the earth, all nations will be drawn to me. So he sees his cross as his enthronement. He sees it as his glory. He sees that as the, the best thing that could ever happen to him for the sake of the world. Now, he's not the only one. Um, Paul says it to the Corinthians who really got things messed up in there. They had things upside down and inside out about what's important in life. And he said this at the beginning of the letter, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So why is the cross glorious? Not because it's pretty, but because it's powerful. Do you get it? It's powerful. It can do what nothing else can do what no other way could have done, what no other God in no other religion ever even thought about doing, God does through the most foolish, the most shame-filled, the most humiliating thing because it's the power for your salvation that happens at that point. God will do anything to save you, and he will do the unheard of, and that's what happens at the cross. So the cross does what no war could ever do. The cross does what no scientific discovery can ever accomplish. The cross does what no leader could ever do in any other way. And no strategic planning, no willpower, no resolution, no promise, no nothing could do what God does through Jesus Christ upon the cross. Whereas someone infinitely beautiful, just in how he was and who he was, was totally humanly disfigured and became ugly as sin for your sake. Isn't that amazing? That's what God does. He takes your curse and gives you a blessing. He takes your shame and gives you honor and glory. He takes the death I deserve and gives me life. That's what the cross does. And that's what Jesus says is so glorious and what's so different about God. There's no other religion that would ever, ever claim. And I've, I've taught um, contemporary world religions at FGCU, and I search. You can't find a religion that would ever have God place himself in such a position as Jesus. He's always powerful. He's always remote. He's always honored in one form or another. He always gets what he, his way, in a sense. And here we have God not only becoming weak, but becoming sin itself and death itself and powerless itself for your sake. Now, what's a word for that? Love, is it not? 
The most glorious thing about our God is the love that he has for us that would do such for us. So, if God's greatest glory is that ugly piece of wood, what marks the glory of God's people today? And that's why I dare say it won't be that we at Thrive will have the greatest show on earth on Sunday mornings, kind of the Cirque du Soleil of Christianity, and that you walk away from it and go like, wow, that was glorious. That, to me, is just shallow. Okay? It won't be that we have the biggest membership and that everybody wants to join just so that they can identify with the winning team and be on the side of the majority and, and have. It's not because we're going to have the wealthiest members in our society who have the most power and prestige to get things done. It's not that some one of our students is going to become governor someday and make a huge difference. That isn't our glory. It's going to be the fact that we pick up our cross. You know, Jesus said, if anyone would come after me and deny himself, he must let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. So the cross of Jesus Christ and the cross of the Christian go together, and we show God's glory by carrying our cross. Now the question is, what does that even mean? You know? I've seen, I don't know if you've ever seen pictures on Good Friday. You can see in the Philippines, for some reason it happens there. There are um, people who decide to get nailed to a cross. Have any of you ever seen that? And they get kind of spun around for a half an hour or so, and then they get taken down from the cross. I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about here, okay? We're not going to start crucifying people and actually nailing them literally to a piece of wood. But... He is talking about bearing a cross, and bearing a cross is to die yourself and follow in Jesus' footsteps. And that's why I think what makes a true disciple, he says in these verses, he's not changing the subject. When he has just talked about the glory of being placed upon the cross for you, and then he switches, it sounds like he switches, to the rest of John 13 that we looked at. It's not changing it. So what marks a true disciple Jesus says it this way, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's not a change of subject. To love others is the mark of a true disciple. Okay? He's saying... You know, when I have left and you can't follow me, when I have physically left but not, and I'm still totally present in this world but invisible to the eyes of others, the only way that they're not going to know that I was real, that I was here, that I did what I did and who I was is going to be through how you, the quality of the love that you have for each other. That's going to make the whole difference. People will know that Jesus is real because of how you love each other. And I think this has some profound implications. The first is this. If the world is turning away from Christianity, and I'm sad to say in the Western Hemisphere and in, in our country right now it is, 
then the first thing we should do is look at ourselves. The tendency of a lot of Christians is to point the finger somewhere else and why that part of society is, and we should just, and what Jesus is saying, you want to know uh, the biggest problem in the Christian church today is I don't think you love each other. Not as I have loved you. Francis Schaeffer, who um, I read some of his books in college. He is an apologist. That is, he uh, defends the Christian faith. He shows also, and he really had a very cutting critique of Western society and how it's kind of falling apart, all these things. He's a great intellectual, and yet this is what he had to say, and I think this truth is probably even more profound. He says, Jesus taught that the mark of the Christian is the observable love shown among all true believers. Here Jesus is stating something else which is much more cutting, much more profound. We cannot expect the world to believe that the Father sent the Son, that Jesus' claims are true, and that Christianity is true unless the world sees some reality of the oneness of true Christians. Can I have an amen to that? Yeah. If the world looks at us and doesn't see that our relationships are compelling and that they, that they are attracted to say, hey, wow, I can't, wow, the way that you, that's amazing. I don't see that anywhere else. If they can't do that, then why in the world would they ever join? Do you understand? I mean, it's pretty simple, but it's still profound. You know, if they don't look at us and see that love that is sacrificial and self-giving, you know, that is a cross in the sense it's not about me, but it's about you, then we really have nothing else to offer, no reason for them to join in. But if they see the way that we sacrifice and give and serve and forgive, and reconcile, and work through, and care for, and stick with, and commit to, and, you know, just continually serve, and sacrifice, officially give to others in the body of Christ, for no apparent reason, then they have a reason to go like, wow, maybe Jesus was real. A second implication is the only way we at Thrive will grow quantitatively is if we grow quantitatively in God's love. Now, what I love about this place is the fact that I get to see this on a weekly and daily. I hear people praying for each other, caring for each other, wanting to serve each other, uh, willingly giving to this community, etc. We're in a, you know, we've started. I don't think we are where God wants us to be in all of this yet. There's a lot more to go, and it starts here. I've got a lot more uh, ways to love and care about people and um, not just be thinking about what's easiest for me as well. I mean, so why get big if all we are is kind of a pep talk on Sunday mornings with a few strategic plans and we have some good music. Who cares? Why would God want us to grow if we're just like everyone else? 2020, the one thing that needs to happen more 
no matter how many strategic plans, no matter how much talk we start looking at, no matter what we do about land or property or what's our next step and how do we move beyond being a, in a storefront to where God is leading us, if we aren't growing in love, it really doesn't matter that we grow at all. And in a world that is filled with just transactional business deals, where even families have been converted into conveniences, where it's like, I'm, I'm here with you only so long as I get something out of this family or this relationship. People are looking for no holds barred, unconditional love. They're looking for someone who's going to take time, who's going to be willing to be open to the differences with other people, who is going to be accommodating, who's going to be understanding, who's going to accept, who's going to forgive, who's going to speak truth in such a loving way that it's constructive and helpful and healthy and amazingly good. You probably know people who are really dying, starving, hungry for that kind of love. And that's what we have to offer in Jesus Christ. And finally, the third uh, implication is don't limit your love to others who are like you. When Jesus says love one another in this passage, some people have kind of looked at that and it seems kind of tribal. It's kind of like an inside club. We just love those who are in the club who are kind of like us. But if you actually look at the disciples that Jesus had surrounded himself, they wouldn't have gotten along with each other. There was Simon, the, there was a zealot, there was a tax collector, there were fishermen, you know? I mean, these were not easy people to put together into one group and have them actually get along. And the truth of the matter is, love and like are very different. Our culture often defines love as being, well, attracted to someone, okay? And that is the romantic, but it's also just a friendship definition of love. It's like, hey, you're somebody I can see myself. Uh, like, wow, we like the same thing. Okay, cool. It's good to hang out with you. And in fact, why I'm hanging out with you is because you like what I like and I like what you like. And when I'm around you, I feel good about myself. So the question is, why am I around you? Is it for me or is it for you? Do you get it? Am I loving them for me or am I loving them for them. And I dare say, much of the, quote, love in the world is liking people because of how they make me feel about myself and how good and advanced. So I'm actually using people to love me. That is not the love that Jesus, Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you. How did Jesus, first of all, he found nothing to like in me. I don't know if you realize, I was not, as a sinner, I am not attracted to a holy God. And God is not attracted to a sinful human being as, oh, isn't this a wonderful, ooh, isn't that, oh, I'm going to have so many things to my advantage if I connect up with John. No, nothing to his advantage to connect to me. Nothing at all. He gains nothing from that relationship in terms of perks or pleasure. He just makes me the object of his love and his love to the point where he has to die for that love. So Soren Kierkegaard, he defined love as, um, he's a Danish philosopher. He said, true love is not loved in return. It is hated, spit upon, and crucified. That is actually what happened historically 
Do you understand? God's love was hated in return. It was spit upon in Jesus, and he was crucified to love us. And that is what true love, love one another as I have loved you means, guess what? You can love someone for your sake, or you can love them for their sake. And Jesus is calling us to love people for their sake. So you might end up um, loving someone who likes country music and you don't even think it's music. <laughs> or someone of a different political persuasion or someone who doesn't uh, agree with you on almost anything. Then you're really loving someone. I think I shared this a uh, uh, number of times because I think it's a profound point. I heard from a, an editor of religious news service, um, a Christian editor. She, ha, uh, she said whenever she goes to a church and she looks around the church and she sees people that don't fit together naturally, she knows they're doing something right. That's the kind of love God is calling us to do. And when we start loving across racial and ethnic and um, age and demographic boundaries, when we start loving people who I don't, quote, get anything out of. You know, I've heard that a lot of times. And I understand the point that people say, you know, I came to your church, but I didn't see anybody my age. And I was looking for people. Are you looking for people who are going to like you? Or are you, gonna, are you looking for people to love? Okay? And I bet you're going to grow more by loving people who are different than you than growing to love people who are very much like you. Okay? You grow more by being around people who are different than you than by growing, uh, being around only people who are like you. And our society right now is so shockingly tribal. There's not much love going on at all. It's time the Christian church says we're the one institution that God set up, Jesus, and he set it up to love one another as he loved us, and so we're going to love people across all the things that divide people in our society today, and we're going to show you the way to do it, and it is a cross, because I sacrifice my own convenience to be around. I sacrifice my time. I give up what I want for the sake of what's best for you for us. Isn't that amazing? So, that's the mark of a true disciple, and that's the mark of true glory. And that's what I believe God is calling us at Thrive to follow, to be about in 2020. And out of that, strategic plans, all sorts of things will happen but it's not worth doing any of those without the love of God and Jesus Christ for you, for me, and then through us to others. Let's pray. Lord God, um, this is your year. This is not my year to just try to make my goals. We're really, what we're really looking forward to, Lord, is becoming more and more the church that authentically reflects 
the love that you had for us, Lord Jesus, that took you to the cross, the price that you paid there, the atonement that you made through pouring out your blood for us, through dying for us, Lord, and rising again for us, Lord Jesus, that everything you did was that kind of a love. And we ask, Lord, that it would be displayed here at Thrive, that it would be displayed in our uh, families, in our friendships, in our relationships, in how we treat people who are different than us in such a way that just really astounds the world and amazes the world because of your reality. You've made all the difference, Lord. So bless this year, uh, not to just be another year, but to be a year of your goodness and grace and truth. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.